Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part two of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. Now let's continue with our story about the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. The Windsors arrived in the Bahamas on August 17th, but not before the Duke covertly established a secret code word with Espiritu Santo if it was felt that the former king should ready himself for a return to Europe. Upon their arrival, they inspected Government House, their official residence, while the Duke presided over the island nation. Edward immediately complained to the British government that the residence would require renovations, the government responding by telling him to suck it up during wartime as the entire population was experiencing great deprivation. The couple immediately moved to the nearby home of a wealthy British industrialist, while renovations began and bickering over who would pay for them continued with the Duke of Windsor eventually assuming much of the cost. By December, Government House was deemed suitable for the Duke and Duchess to return. Although the British government successfully extracted the Windsors from any embarrassing European intrigue, another potential headache soon reared its head. In October, Swedish industrialist Axel Wenner Gren appeared in the Bahamas after spending time crisscrossing the Western Hemisphere, attempting to promote peace and ultimately a negotiated end to the newly started World War. Wenner Gren was the founder of the Electrolux Corporation, had diversified his holdings, and by the 30s was one of the world's wealthiest men. Even if his intent was altruistic, interacting with the Duke of Windsor was problematic. Worse, it was suspected that Wenner Gren was actually a German agent. Within weeks, Wenner Gren had ingratiated himself with the Duke and Duchess. In December 1940, with regular passenger service between the Bahamas and Miami suspended, he offered, via his luxury yacht, the Southern Cross, to transport the couple to the U.S. mainland, supposedly to fix the Duchess's infected tooth. So controversial was Wenner Gren that during the Windsor's visit, he was forbidden by the U.S. government from leaving the port area. The FBI was aware of both the Duke and Duchess's pro-Nazi leanings, especially after both individuals repeatedly verbalized such attitudes within their social circle. The American public was unaware of this attitude, turning out by the thousands to observe the two participants allegedly living out the love story of the century. By 1941, Wenner Gren was a regular dinner guest at Government House, when the Duke of Windsor was informed by British military intelligence that Wenner Gren had close ties to Hermann Goering, was potentially a Nazi agent, and the Duke should keep his distance, he replied, he is a very prominent and important resident of the Bahamas, engaged in various development schemes most beneficial to this colony, giving vast amount of employment. I regard him as deserving of all possible encouragement. 
if nothing else, this mentality on the part of Edward indicated his willingness to thumb his nose at the British hierarchy. The Duke of Windsor reached new heights of passive aggression when he granted an American magazine an interview in which he stated, America will help Britain more by not engaging in actual fighting, but remaining a keystone for the new world, which must be created when the war is over. There will be a new order in Europe, whether imposed by Germany or Britain. These comments, spoken as the entire British leadership was doing everything possible to involve the U.S. in entering the conflict, reverberated throughout the government. Churchill himself responded by secret cable, letting the Duke know in no uncertain terms that the article was perceived as defeatist, pro-Nazi, and encouraging American isolationism during a time period in which the fate of Great Britain was hanging in the balance. The Duke responded typically by claiming he was misquoted, even though he approved the piece in advance. But then he also complained to Churchill about a Life magazine article in which Queen Elizabeth referred to the Duchess as that woman and then indicated that he no longer considered Churchill a friend or ally. To Churchill, who had done everything possible to help Edward avoid the catastrophe of the abdication and acted as a buffer to those in the government who were openly hostile to the Duke and Duchess, this must have been a last straw. He did not even bother to respond to the Duke's cable. Throughout 1941, the Windsors continued to be an annoyance at a time of national peril, Despite governmental reluctance, the Windsors were granted the needed permission to repeatedly travel throughout both the U.S. and Canada. The Duke, actually owning a large spread in Alberta, purchased in 1919 that was devoted to cattle ranching, a financial wash he was considering selling until oil drilling began in 1941. In the vicinity, the excuse for the Windsors to visit. More than likely, they were wanting to relieve the boredom of the Caribbean and the attention of an official visit that even included a stay at the White House. While much of the media attention was positive, there were questions about the remarkable luggage train the Windsors carted around, how they funded their trips under the current currency transaction restrictions, and the large amount of shopping and subsequent unpaid bills, especially by Wallace. British intelligence suspected that the dollars implemented during the Windsor's visit came via the efforts of Axel Wenner Gren. Any issues regarding American neutrality ended in December of 1941 with Pearl Harbor and America's entrance into the conflict. Although the Windsors did involve themselves in a positive way, he in attempting to address the poverty and paltry wages of most of the locals, and she in working with the Red Cross and other social organizations in issues of local health and maternity, they also never stopped in campaigning for another post elsewhere. The Duke suggested a roving ambassadorship in South America. This and any other suggestions were ignored. The reality of the war was underlined by the death of David's brother, Prince George, the Duke of Kent, in a plane crash of a large flying boat aircraft that went down in Scotland in August 1942, killing all but one of the 15 crew members. After this tragedy, letters were exchanged by the Duke with his mother, which at least momentarily signaled an attempt at improving family relations. It did nothing to improve the relationship as far as Wallace, George VI, again rejecting any written requests for the restoring of her official, her royal highness title, the current monarch snippily replying that as Edward VIII renounced all royal titles for his family by abdicating, no title ever existed and could not be restored. 
As if the issues surrounding the Windsors' loyalty were not enough, another scandal gripped the Bahamas on July 8, 1943, when the body of Sir Harry Oakes was discovered in his bed, Oakes bludgeoned and horribly mutilated. Oakes was an American who had made a fortune as a prospector and gold miner. For tax reasons, he moved to the Bahamas in 1935, became a British citizen, and contributed mightily to both British and Bahamian charities, endeavors which earned him the title of baronet. He also invested heavily in developing Bahamian building projects and acquiring land, and by 1943 was the colony's wealthiest citizen. His murder still remains one of the enduring criminal mysteries of the 20th century, especially because of the investigation by and proximity of the Duke of Windsor. The Duke immediately involved himself in a controversial manner by importing detectives from Miami, maintaining that local police were not competent enough to investigate properly. Within days, despite some still murky circumstances, they arrested Count Alfred de Marigny, Oakes's son-in-law, who was not particularly liked by his father-in-law, after the suspect eloped with his young daughter. One of the Miami detectives investigating the case, James Barker, went so far as to travel to Bar Harbor, Maine, the summer home of the Oakes family, and briefed Lady Eunice Oakes on the case, claiming that he had successfully lifted a de Marigny fingerprint from some furniture in Sir Harry's bedroom. Luckily for de Marigny, his 18-year-old wife Nancy did not believe he was the murderer. She also committed the family's considerable resources to a private investigator and defense attorney who proceeded to not only establish de Marigny's solid alibi at trial, they also proved that any fingerprints presented came from the water glass the suspect used during his interrogation and exposed several falsehoods stated by Barker about the fingerprint evidence. De Marigny was acquitted, but ultimately deported, denied entry to the United States. Count Alfred and Nancy headed for Ernest Hemingway's home in Cuba. They separated in 1945 and divorced a few years later. Several theories about Sir Harry's death have evolved over the years, the strongest concerning a plot against Oakes orchestrated by a prominent local businessman intent on stopping the baronet from his stated intent to move his assets and business efforts to Mexico. This businessman, Harold Christie, admitted to being asleep in the Oakes household on the night of the murder and discovered the body but he was never seriously investigated over the crime, and some conspiracy theories even attempt to tie Christie in with the Duke of Windsor into an elaborate scheme to fleece Oakes's local cash assets and split the money up, although these and other allegations have never been substantiated. Christie remained an extremely powerful Bahamian businessman and was even knighted in 1964. During the trial, the Duke and Duchess conveniently left the island for one of their American forays. The acquittal was, at the least, a PR disaster because of the Duke's connection to the debunked investigators, whose participation could certainly be perceived as sinister. The entire incident only added to the Windsor's displeasure with their island domain, and once again the Duke began the drumbeat for another assignment, egged on by Wallace, who writing to her aunt in Baltimore, stated, I really feel that neither of us can stand this place for another year. To his colleagues in the colonial office, Windsor also reiterated his desire for formal recognition of Wallace 
repatriation to Great Britain and even threatened to force the issue by merely resigning. Although a protracted three-way negotiation ensued, it was again made clear by both Churchill and George VI that residency in Great Britain was not an option, that he should reside in the U.S. or France without any official change of title or status, and no definite position could be identified during this lengthy discussion. The Duke finally brought the negotiations to a halt by summarily resigning in March of 1945, telling Churchill that he was open to any new assignment. Nothing was offered. By August of 1945, with the war over, the Windsors found themselves back on the French Riviera at the Chateau de la Croix. The Duchess busily renovating the mansion as a result of the damage done by the German and Italian troops that used it as a barracks. And the Duke... Here's how he described his typical day to a dinner guest wife of a U.S. diplomat. I got up late, and I went with the Duchess and watched her buy a hat. And then on the way home, I had the car drop me so I could watch some of your soldiers playing football. When I got home, the Duchess was having a French lesson. So I got a lot of tin boxes down, which my mother had sent me last week, and looked through them. They were essays and so on that I had written when I was in France, studying French before the Great War. You know I'm not much of a reading man. The Duke and Duchess would have not been so carefree if they were aware of developments concerning huge caches of German documents that had fallen into the hands of the American military in April of 1945. First, some actual stacks of papers that were the former extensive files of the German foreign ministry, and then another large metal container containing more documents preserved on microfiche. These documents were supposed to be destroyed, but they were either quickly abandoned in haste or bartered by German officers, desperate for safe passage away from any potential Soviet zone. An entire volume comprised of information concerning the Duke of Windsor was identified once the documents were transported to the Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary Force. Understanding the potential sensitivity of extensive documents labeled German-British relations, British officials attempted to stop any dissemination of the materials, but at least two copies of the files were made and one sent to the U.S. State Department. This included the information on the Duke of Windsor, which came to be known as the Marburg file. This batch of communiques included telegrams outlining various overtures made to the Windsors and included both his suggestion to actually bomb Great Britain thereby precipitating an armistice that would restore his reign, and even worse, his request for a secret code word to be used in the event that his return to Europe and political power was warranted. Both the newly elected head of the British government, Clement Attlee, and the king were notified of the existence of these documents and their potentially explosive ramifications. The collective response at every level and branch of the British government was an emphatic desire to ensure that the documents were either destroyed or suppressed. On the 20th of August, the British formally asked the American State Department to either destroy or return the Marburg file to the British government. Eventually, the U.S. military, under the orders of General Eisenhower, agreed to turn over its paper copy of the 490-page file to the British. It was quickly destroyed. Unfortunately, the microfiche copy in Washington would eventually be ruled as historically and legally too important to relinquish. The State Department did promise to withhold any mention of the information at the upcoming Nuremberg trials and also to prevent any leaks to the press. 
The latter was a promise that was broken when Newsweek magazine, in November 1946, discussed in an article files potentially embarrassing to the British government. And again, another formal request was made directly to Secretary of State George Marshall to destroy the Marburg file. Still unaware of this intrigue, the Duke and Duchess set out for the U.S. in 1947, enjoying celebrity status in Palm Beach, Newport, and New York. But there was no doubt as to their status among their extended family when the Princess of Wales announced her engagement to Philip Mountbatten for the couple's November 20, 1947 wedding. Despite a list of 2,200 guests, the Duke and Duchess were the only royal relatives that were not invited. Instead, they had to settle for hosting a Christmas Eve dinner for 20 at their permanent apartment at the Waldorf Towers, which included their friend, Cole Porter. The lease having expired on the Cop d'Antibes, the Windsors toyed with the idea of moving to the U.S., but once they determined that they would be subjected to substantial income tax, decided against the idea. Their current tax situation in France was also beneficial, the government granting them exemptions, including a sweetheart lease on a property near the Bois de Boulogne that required a payment of less than 100 pounds annually. Whether these perks were also granted as a favor to the British government as a means of financially anchoring the Windsors to France is unknown. But the Windsors eventually stopped even personally contemplating relocating to Great Britain, a move that would have resulted in major tax liabilities there as well. By the late 40s, with annual expenses and an absurdly luxurious lifestyle costing in excess of 100,000 pounds annually, the Duke decided to collaborate with a Life magazine writer on his memoirs. This writer, Charles Murphy, had previously ghostwritten several Life magazine articles ostensibly written by the Duke about his life before World War I. This book was scheduled to be finished by September of 1949, a deadline that was exceeded several times. Murphy later commented that the Duke had an attention span of no longer than three minutes, and frequently whole days of work needed to be shelled when the writer was confronted by the hungover Duke with trembling hands and bloodshot eyes, his drinking already heavy, intensifying in the period following World War II. Events in 1950 could only have fractured any other normal marriage, but posterity has given the public a much greater understanding of a relationship that was anything but typical and a married couple with some fundamental issues. From her very first days as a high-profile love interest of the future King of England, Wallace Simpson and the nature of her relationship with Edward VIII was the subject of seemingly outrageous gossip and speculation. These rumors allege that, among other things, Wallace Simpson was gynecologically a hermaphrodite, a sadomasochist who beat Edward with a whip and a lesbian. After their deaths and the carefully crafted public image of the Duke and Duchess began to fray, certain aspects of their relationship became clearer. Based on numerous eyewitness accounts, it was obvious that their interaction was not a love affair, but more of a mother-son relationship, with Wallace constantly berating her husband, frequently publicly. Instead of anger or apathy, David seemed to crave this sort of attention. One observer familiar with the couple stated, she treated the prince at the best like a child who needed keeping in order, at the worst with contempt but he invited it and begged for more. The Duke was practically obsessed by his wife with a childlike emotion she did not share and found suffocating, frequently lashing out at him angrily, usually about how he had let her down again.
Following one such exchange, a journalist recalled Edward practically pleading with her to lighten up. Darling, are you going to send me to bed in tears again tonight? This from the former King of England. The couple's dysfunction certainly intruded into the bedroom. The same family member who supplied information to the FBI about the Duchess's affair with Ribbentrop also stated that the Duke was impotent and unable to perform normal intercourse and that Wallace gratified him orally. That the Duke of Windsor was aggressively bisexual is now historically accepted and may have been the root cause of his sexual dysfunction. In the case of Wallace Simpson, nasty and angry were two words frequently used to describe the Duchess of Windsor. These fundamental emotions most likely the result of the deep frustration of being bored to death in a marriage that she was manipulated into in the first place. It was within this dynamic that the Windsors boarded the Queen Mary in New York on May 24, 1950, winding up a trip to the U.S. and intent on Cherbourg and their home in Paris. On board as well was James Paul Jimmy Donahue Jr., known as the heir to the Woolworth fortune and little else. Donahue had met the Windsors before in Palm Beach as far back as 1941 through his mother, Jessie Woolworth Donahue. Jesse was perpetually on the fringes of high society in both New York and Palm Beach, her blatant attempts to buy her way onto the social register, her only real focus in life. The Windsors tolerated her company, especially because she always picked up the check for extravagant entertainment and all sorts of expensive baubles, especially for the Duchess. Her son was kicked out of several prep schools, had never worked a day in his life, and was flamboyantly homosexual a personality trait that made what happened between Donahue, also 20 years younger, and the Duchess of Windsor on the May 24th transatlantic voyage shockingly unexpected. Exactly when and how the relationship was consummated has never been documented, but by the time the trio all arrived in Paris, the Duchess and Jimmy were lovers. On the surface, Donahue probably seemed initially interesting, upbeat, and spontaneous, able to speak several languages, fly a plane, and most of all supply a giant bankroll to the money-obsessed Windsors. Jimmy's mother normally kept a tight leash on him financially, but once she heard who her son was socializing with, she loosened the purse strings to encourage what she thought was a good time with two of the biggest celebrities of the 20th century. And Jimmy could always rely on his cousin, his mother's niece, Barbara Hutton, eventually known as the poor little rich girl, to lend him a few bucks. Barbara had already inherited millions from her grandmother and mother's Woolworth estate. Wallace took full advantage, spending thousands at a time on furs and jewelry without a second thought. To the Duke, at least initially, Donahue seemed harmless. To any observers, certainly Jimmy couldn't be sleeping with the Duchess. He was notoriously gay, something that kept the relationship from becoming a scandal. But he was the perfect vehicle for Wallace to humiliate her husband, eventually blatantly and publicly. The trio, sometimes even including Jimmy's mother, would socialize in high-profile bistros in Paris and Biarritz, attending galas, the Duke usually going to bed early while the Duchess and Jimmy partied on. Eyebrows certainly started to be raised when the Duchess traveled to New York alone, the Duke having to remain behind in Paris, ostensibly up against another deadline for the manuscript of his autobiography. After two weeks of phone calls, in which only the maid answered, 
or a very curt duchess, and once the duke got a hold of some newspaper clippings discussing her nocturnal behavior, he decided to head to New York himself, manuscripts still unfinished. When he got there, he received an affectionate greeting from Wallace, both of them putting to rest any rumors of an estrangement. But the strange trio continued their pattern of hitting the top nightclubs in New York, David always cutting it short and leaving Jimmy with the Duchess. Later, there were rumors that Wallace frequently would authoritatively tell the Duke to pack it in for the night, enjoying this further humiliation. Perhaps Wallace was experiencing some form of midlife crisis. In early 1951, she was treated for cancer and required a hysterectomy. A King's Story, the long-awaited autobiography of the Duke of Windsor, practically pried out of him by ghostwriter Charles Murphy and released in January of 1951, was a runaway bestseller, translated into 20 languages and earning today's equivalent of over $10 million. Reviews were ambivalent, the Duke unable to disguise his perpetual aimlessness and superficiality. The backdrop of this public success was the private continuation of the Duchess's affair with Jimmy Donahue. Another milestone occurred with the February 6, 1952 death of George VI. The Duke was invited back to Britain to the funeral. His wife was expressly excluded. Dressed in his military uniform for the proceedings, he was publicly a secondary figure during the funeral. Privately, more drama played out when David was informed that his agreement with King George to pay the Duke 10,000 additional pounds annually was now voided by the King's death. During subsequent discussions with David's lawyer present, he disputed this termination, demanded an official government appointment, and once again official recognition of Wallace. Perhaps as a concession, the Duke's annual payment was continued with the proviso that he stayed out of Great Britain or the money would be taxed. His demands for a government posting and a title for the Duchess was again rejected. While he was gone, his wife blatantly carried on all over Paris with Jimmy Donahue. Both the funeral and adultery sequence was repeated, sans business negotiation when David's mother, the Queen Mary, died in March of 1953. However, the Duke was excluded from the Queen's coronation in June of 1953 based on an obscure absence of proper protocol, a pretext which was probably contrived. In Paris, at least the Duke was paid handsomely by the United Press International for rights to photograph him watching the event on television. In 1954, the Duke and Duchess dodged another bullet regarding the Marburg Papers when after an extensive negotiation involving both the highest levels of the British government and President Eisenhower, the publication of the German-British relations volume containing the damning information about the Duke was delayed. The British government again pressed for the sensitive files to be transferred to Britain. Once again, the U.S. refused, but promised to delay publication. That summer, the Windsors were wrestling with their own domestic drama, Jimmy Donahue rented a luxurious yacht to cruise the Mediterranean to sail along the Italian coast. By then, his childish practical jokes, which included diving off of the yacht during dinner while wearing formal attire and a now palpable lack of any real intellect or sophistication, was grating heavily on the Duchess. This attitude came to a head when the Windsor entourage, having driven five cars mostly containing staff and luggage across Austria, arrived in Baden-Baden for five days at a luxury hotel. Seated for dinner 
and enjoying cocktails, Wallace commented that it was inconsiderate of Jimmy to have such a blatantly unpleasant garlic aroma on his breath. Revealing his utter immaturity, Donahue responded by kicking the Duchess hard under the table, right on the shin, a blow which tore her stocking and drew blood. Getting up from her seat, wincing in pain, she was assisted by her husband, who quickly turned the tables. We've had enough of you, Jimmy, he hissed. Get out. Both Donahue's were never mentioned again, either in the Windsor household or any future literary recollections. Jimmy Donahue died, age 51, at the family apartment on Fifth Avenue in New York in 1966 of an alcohol and barbiturate overdose. In his bedroom were over a dozen framed pictures of the Duchess of Windsor. The Duchess quickly moved on, deciding to write her own memoirs, induced by a $500,000 advance and an additional $250,000 from McCall's for the serial rights. Charles Murphy was brought in in late 1954 and managed to get about two-thirds of the manuscript completed before his relationship with the Duchess broke down and he was fired. Cleveland Amory, a sophisticated author and journalist, was hired, but this relationship also went south and Amory quit, refusing to adhere to the Duchess's version of events, which he characterized as something out of Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm. The publishers then insisted that Murphy be brought back to finish up, which he did. The book, released in February of 1956, did not sell as well as the Duke's and received mostly poor reviews. This was a reflection on especially the Duchess's public image, which, after gossip column recounts of her nightclub antics with Jimmy Donahue and her frequently public surly and rude behavior towards service workers and others, suffered greatly. In July of 1957, another publishing event directly impacted both of the Windsors. The Marburg Papers volume, which contained information about the Windsors' behavior before they left Europe for the Caribbean. Publicly, both the government and the Duke of Windsor vehemently denied all of the allegations, calling the source tainted, slanted optimistically to impress Hitler, and unreliable. Sympathetic journalists were tapped to compose articles reiterating skepticism. Privately, everyone in government and the royal family knew that these revelations were primary source material that could not be refuted, the Germans writing candidly and sincerely of what they had specifically seen and heard, and never thinking for a moment that these documents would ever become public. Winston Churchill was no longer willing to rationalize the Duke's behavior. Two years later, when invited to sail on Aristotle Onassis's giant yacht, the former prime minister declined when he discovered that the Windsors were also invited. If nothing else, any feelings of remorse over how the Windsors were treated completely dissipated, the couple now privately perceived as literal traitors during a war for the nation's survival. The Windsors themselves were so self-absorbed that this incident, of which the Duke was fully briefed in advance, was considered nothing but a mere annoyance. The couple probably did not understand that efforts were being taken, not because anyone considered the Windsors to be honorable or sincere, but merely to protect the monarchy and avoid international political embarrassment. Noel Coward summed up the societal attitude to these revelations in his diary by stating, Secret papers have disclosed the Duke's pro-Nazi perfidy, which, of course, I was perfectly aware of at the time. Poor dear, what a monumental ass he has always been. 
after the income generated by their literary endeavors and rumored substantial black market currency transactions, the Duke and Duchess decided to buy a country retreat known as the Moulin des Tuileries in the suburbs surrounding Paris. Refurbishing this home, which they referred to as the Mill, became the main focus of their efforts subsequent to the estate's purchase in 1951. As the 60s dawned, shunned by the British aristocracy, no longer of much interest to anyone in the U.S. other than facilitators of best-dress lists, on the eve of a generation more interested in personalities like the Beatles, the Windsors began to fade from public relevance. Other than the occasional White House invitation, they became politically invisible. As the 60s ticked by, the Windsors devolved from world-famous celebrity status to an existence seemingly out of a Dickens novel. Despite their immense wealth, they openly paid their servants 20% less than the going rate, stating that it was a privilege to work for them. This despite homes crammed with every possible amenity for both the Duke and Duchess and their guests, toilet tissue literally unrolled and folded into squares. Many attendees of their habitual dinner parties were struck by the Duke of Windsor's frequent and casual comments on Britain's involvement in World War II, stating that this resulted from manipulation from both Roosevelt and the Jews. Their occasional interviews or documentaries stuck to the fairy tale of the abdication resulting from the Duke being forced to choose between his crown or Wallace Simpson. When Queen Elizabeth II relaxed the official attitude towards the Duke and Duchess and even invited both of them to some official events in Great Britain, the Duke began to refuse any invitation that did not include his wife. However, this official softening resulted in the first official meeting of the Duchess of Windsor and her mortal enemy, the Queen Mother, at a 1967 memorial for Queen Mary which at least went off without a fistfight. Attempts to reach out to the estranged couple also included a 1970 visit by Prince Charles in Paris on other matters, a get-together prompted and arranged by the British ambassador. In his diary, Charles provided a hair-raising account of his experience. The whole house reeked of some particularly strong joss sticks, and from out of the walls came the muffled sound of scratchy piped music. The Duchess appeared from among a host of the most dreadful American guests I have ever seen. The look of incredulity on their faces was a study, and most of them were thoroughly tight. To my relief, I managed to escape into a small sitting room where I was able to have a word with Uncle David by himself. He seemed in very good form, although rather bent and using a stick. One eye was closed most of the time as a result of his cataract operation. But apart from that, he was in very talkative form and used wide, expansive gestures the whole time while clutching an enormous cigar. While we were talking, the Duchess kept flitting to and fro like a strange bat. She looks incredible for her age and obviously has her face lifted every day. Consequently, she can't speak except by clenching her teeth all the time and not moving any facial muscle. She struck me as a hard woman totally unsympathetic and somewhat superficial, very little warmth of the true kind, only that brilliant hostess type of charm, but without feeling. All that she talked about was whether she would wear a hat at the Arc de Triomphe the next day. The whole thing seemed so tragic, the existence, the people, and the atmosphere, that I was relieved to escape it after 45 minutes and drive around Paris by night. 
By then, the Duke's health was deteriorating rapidly. One eye was mostly closed due to complications from cataracts. Circulatory issues were now pronounced after a lifetime of heavy smoking, which also eventually caused throat cancer, arthritis forcing him to limp along with a cane and preventing him from golf or even working in the garden. By May of 1972, the end was clearly approaching, signaled by the first and only visit to the Duke's Paris home by Queen Elizabeth II, her husband, Prince Philip, and accompanied by Prince Charles. It lasted a perfunctory 30 minutes to one of the last of the American socialites who spent time with the Windsors in their last years. The Duke reflected, The Duchess gave me everything that I lacked from my family. She gave me comfort and love and kindness. Seemingly wishing to impart an image of an elderly couple joyfully spending their last golden years together, the Duke's final days belied this invention. After the Duke's death, officially from throat cancer on May 28, 1972, several accounts placed the Duchess of Windsor at his bedside, soothing him with kind words during his final minutes and kissing him on the forehead. But the nurse who spent the last two weeks of the Duke of Windsor's life working the 12-hour night shift contradicted these accounts. For her entire tenure, the Duchess of Windsor never even so much as looked in on him or said goodnight as he descended toward the inevitable and became completely bedridden. The Duke of Windsor would repeatedly call his wife's name, the nurse describing it as pitiful, like a lost lamb calling for its mother. But Wallace never appeared. Upon the death of the Duke, she was awakened and told of his passing. This account was also confirmed by John Utter, the Windsor's personal secretary. The Duke of Windsor's body was flown to Great Britain and dignified with the usual ceremonies, including lying publicly in state at St. George's Chapel on the grounds of Windsor Castle, the traditional burial place for British kings and queens since Henry VIII. The Duchess of Windsor was flown to these ceremonies separately, where she interacted with the rest of the royal family who treated her with chilly dignity. Although as a former King of England, the Duke of Windsor was entitled to burial at St. George's, he was instead interred by previous agreement at the Royal Burial Ground at Frogmore Estate. This cemetery was established to handle the overflow from the Royal Vault at St. George's, as space there became restricted for actual monarchs and those in direct succession. Frogmore Estate is owned by the British royal family, and is only open to the public six days out of the year. In addition, the Royal Burial Ground, which contains the Duke of Windsor's gravestone, is restricted from public access by a high iron fence for the former Edward VIII, a kind of British royal Siberia. Within a year of the Duke's death, the Duchess of Windsor fired his longtime valet, Sidney Johnson, who had served since meeting the couple in the Bahamas. This as a result of the death of Johnson's wife, prompting him to ask to leave work at 4 p.m. to care for his four children. This so enraged the Duchess that she discharged him after more than three decades of employment with no severance or pension. Unfortunately for the Duchess of Windsor, karmic retribution would set in over the course of the last years of her life. She rapidly descended into dementia and became the pawn of Suzanne Blum, an attorney whose husband handled the Duke and Duchess's legal affairs until Blum's husband's death allowed her to take over. 
By 1975, a classic case of what is now easily identifiable as elder abuse, the Duchess had suffered numerous broken bones and falls, as well as a perforated ulcer, leaving little ability for her to do more than have a nurse wheel her into the garden where she spent her days staring into space. Within a few years, she had lost use of her hands, could no longer speak, and had to be physically carried from her bed to wherever she sat. With power of attorney wrested from her by Maitre Blum, the lawyer began to systematically fire anyone she perceived as a challenge to her authority. She kept the Duchess heavily sedated, ordered nurses to eventually consign the Duchess to upstairs rooms of the house so as not to notice valuable items that were disappearing from the downstairs area, rumored to have been sold privately for Blum's benefit. Visitors were eventually slowed to an occasional individual who came away appalled at the condition of the house, the once immaculate, glamorous residence, now even described by one visitor as a slum. Things were so bad that one of her nurses, Elvira Gozan, who worked for the Duchess for ten years until the day Wallace died, actually twice took it upon herself to attempt to personally contact the British royal family about the situation. In 1980, she was rebuffed from even entering Buckingham Palace, and in 1983, she met with one of the Queen's administrators, who assured her that he would pass along the information, and the Queen would respond. But Elizabeth II, nor anyone else connected to the royals, ever interceded on the Duchess's behalf. For the last years of her life, Wallace lived essentially alone, a bedridden recluse, and finally died of bronchial pneumonia. April 24, 1986, aged 89. Her only real legacy was her remarkable jewelry collection, which was auctioned off for $50 million, the proceeds and her estate given to the Louis Pasteur Institute. Her home in the Bois de Boulogne was eventually leased by British royal family antagonist Mohammed Al-Fayed, who helped restore the mansion and even hired Sidney Johnson as his personal valet and also curator during the renovation of the Windsor's home. The Duchess of Windsor's modest April 29, 1986 funeral ceremony at St. George's Chapel was well attended by members of the royal family. However, her coffin had no flag or standard, and its plaque omitted the Her Royal Highness title before her name inscribed as Wallace, Duchess of Windsor, 1896 1986. The hearse containing her coffin proceeded along private roads. To exclude any public acknowledgement, only 15 individuals were present at her graveside ceremony, including the Queen, Prince Philip, Prince Charles, and Princess Diana. But the Queen Mother, on the advice of Queen Elizabeth, did not attend. The Duchess of Windsor was buried side by side with her husband at Frogmore, the only commoner in the cemetery the Duke and Duchess of Windsor's social, political, and geographic exile, now eternally complete. Thank you for listening to part two of this podcast about the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books The Traitor King by Andrew Loney, Wallace in Love by Andrew Morton, 
17 Carnations by Andrew Morton. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical, and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Subscribe to my YouTube page at Noblesse Oblige, and also rate us on iTunes. If you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website. Mm -hmm.